Good morning. It's a privilege to be here. It's not often anymore that I get introduced as a one-time head ice hockey coach. I haven't coached since 1993. But, um, you know, I w- for a while I was introduced in churches, and they'd say, this guy teaches apologetics, defending the faith. Then he coaches, defending the school. Uh, by the way, the first game I coached, the game was over, a whistle blew, and a fight started on the ice. I turned to my players to say, I don't want anybody leaving the bench. And I was the only one standing on the bench. <laughs> Forty guys on the ice fought for 20 minutes. One of the refs got beat up. Dead serious. So, pastors would start, they wouldn't hear that story, but pastors would start saying, yeah, you know, I don't think hockey is much of a Christian sport, but you can ask this guy what he thinks about that. Okay, Gary, come on up. So I had to think of something to say. So here's what I started saying. I said, you know, I've thought about this, and hockey is a Christian sport because hockey players and Baptists both solved their problems in roughly the same way. (laughs) So people quit nagging me. (laughs) All right. Well, for a number of reasons that I'll bring up in various parts this morning, uh, early 1990s, I was really convicted. I've been a professor since 1976. I know that's, you know, middle ages. Most of you are looking at each other going, I wasn't even born. Um, And I used to do a lot of hardcore evidences, proofs for this, arguments for that. And about 1990, I got really convicted, increasingly convicted, that apologetics says a lot of things about the hurting part of life. In other words, apologetics, which means defense of the faith. And by the way, it's a New Testament term. In fact, we're commanded to be able to give an answer to anybody who asks us. Peter tells us that. But I was just really convicted that apologetics can help us do so many things. Or think of it this way. Build so many bridges from a theoretical situation to a practical situation, whether it's witnessing, whether it's helping people who are going through doubts, a couple of our topics this morning, that's the second one, or how about facing the worst pain you'll ever face? I think apologetics builds bridges, and I'm going to make a claim, it's pretty bold, but this part of the material is not mine, so I'm not bragging about me, I'll tell you about that, you'll see it in the slide when we get there, but The things I'm going to share today are, I would say, maybe the most advanced techniques that are taught to people when they're in very painful situations to find relief of their pain. In other words, these techniques really, really work. Now, I'm not a healthcare professional, but when people heard that I'd gone through doubt, second topic, this morning, but when they found out I'd gone through doubt for about 10 to 15 years, they started coming to me and saying, oh, please help me. This, this is killing me. I'm going through it right now. Will you talk to me? And over the years, since the 1970s, 
I've had over 500 discussions with doubters. Interesting thing is, in the last 10 years, unbelievers have started coming to me and saying, I'm a doubter. I'm an unbelieving doubter. Can you talk to me? Imagine what I thought the day I got an email from a fellow who said, help, help, I'm an atheist and I don't want to go to hell. Now you think about that. (laughs) I'm an atheist and I don't want to go to hell. Two years later, he trusted Christ as a savior. Now this was like 10 years ago. He just wrote me an email just weeks ago and said, hey, just in case you wondered, I'm still going well with the Lord. So now to me, that's an example of how apologetics can answer questions and people who were outside the faith could even come. One other thing, one other little kicker on this message. I may be able to talk about this later in the message. We'll see how it goes this morning. But after being convinced about 1995 that apologetics has something to say to practice, my wife at that time of 23 years my best friend in the world, was diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. Our oncologist said it's arguably the worst species of cancer you can have. And she only lived four months from diagnosis to the end. We came home from the hospital in the first week in May, uh, 1995, And she died just after the first week in August of that same year. But while she was in the hospital, the head of the psychology department at University of Virginia, in our area, one of the top medical schools, the head of the psychology department came in and he said, if you'd like, he said to my wife, I would like to teach you some pain control techniques that will really, really work on your pain. And she said, you know, I'm not in a lot of pain, so I'm just fine. But I said, since I taught a PhD course in counseling for 10 years and taught this area, I said, hey, looks like she's gonna go to sleep. Why don't we go outside and talk? I'd like to know what you're gonna teach her. And turns out it was the same thing I had been teaching in my classes. But the point is they use it in a hospital for pain relief. This is just an incredible topic. One more thing. I'm not going to be jumping onto the first slide here for a few moments. My mistake. It's not your people. But I neglected to put the first four slides with this. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the nature of suffering. And then, uh, actually a little bit more than I already have. And uh, then we'll get into this. In fact, let's go ahead and go to the first slide for just a moment. This might be something you're thinking about. I'm saying the worst suffering you'll ever face. And you say, well, what's the worst suffering? Isn't that a little bit, isn't that different from person to person? Yep. What kind of suffering is the worst? Well, different kinds of suffering can be horrible for different people. Depends on all kinds of things. Uh, The pain level, the emotional level, uh, who in your life is affected, how many kids you have, um, you know, who's around what this does, your struggle with work, uh, everything else. How about a church? But most commentators, I could give you examples, but most commentators say there are exceptions. For sure, 
there are exceptions to what I'm going to say, so I don't want anybody to get offended. My mom has been a shut-in for uh, 10 years, and she lives in excruciating pain every day, rarely walks, and she's under pain control, but they can't stop her pain. And she lives in pain at least 20 hours a day, very bad pain. So there are exceptions to what I'm going to say, and my own mother is an example. But for the most part, the books say that emotional pain is worse than physical pain. Not always, but emotional pain is often the worst. And even if it's not, it's bad, or it can be bad. And that's the most, most of the kind of suffering that I'm going to talk about. I'm going to f- say that we're addressing two kinds Emotional pain right now and emotional doubt in the next lecture. Two totally different topics. All right, let's go to the next one. Thanks. Okay. Here's the kind of emotional pain I'm talking about. When Christians come up to me and they'll say, please talk to me. I'm, I'm, I don't know how I got myself into this mess, but I'm really angry with God. Because God let maybe a spouse die. Maybe as we've just had two cases in the last two years, two children died among my own family members. Two brothers, daughters, children died in two different cases. And when my wife passed away, I thought nobody in the world understood my level of pain. The only two kinds of people... And again, there are exceptions. But the only two kinds of people that I thought could understand this kind of pain were somebody lost a spouse or somebody lost a child. Nothing else is on the map of emotional pain. In fact, while my wife was dying, I almost didn't go to school those days at all, but one day I was there for a few hours. And a young lady, a student, stopped me in the hallway, and she said, Oh, Dr. Habermas, I want you to know I'm praying for you I know what you're going through. Now, if you read books on grief, you never tell people, I know what you're going through. There's a bunch of reasons for that. But regardless, you'll see one of them right here. She said, I know what you're going through. And I said, really? And she said, yes, my aunt died last week. And I said, okay, well, thanks for praying. I walked away and it kind of ticked me, you know, that, you know, how we have reactions we'd rather not have sometimes. But I didn't let her see that. But to me, there's nothing like a spouse or a child, in my mind. By the way, after my wife died, I started, I would go out with couples. People would say, well, you haven't had a good meal lately. We'll take you out to dinner, you know. And I would know these people. So I would, I would say, kind of boldly across the table, I'd say to the guy, what's the worst possible thing that can happen to you? They usually said, if my wife died. And then I would turn to the wife and I'd say, what's the worst possible thing if, that could happen to you? And she would say, if my child dies. There was that difference between the two. Maybe 20% of the women would say, my husband. But the vast majority said, my child. And the husband almost always said, my wife. I just, I just think that that's interesting. And then when I pushed it, because I knew these people pretty well, I'd say, huh, your child, huh? This guy doesn't matter right here, huh? And she'd go, he's a big boy. And she'd give him an elbow. He could take care of himself. It's my kids I worry about. So these are the categories. But what happens when this 
bleeds over to our relationship with God. And it usually is things like that in life, spouse, child, and we get angry with God. Unanswered prayer, or my prayers don't go past the ceiling. You know, why is God ignoring me? That kind of thing. Next. Um, <clears throat> you can see here some, some lists. I've got some other things. Broken promises, unanswered prayer, physical or emotional pain. Um, is there another one there? Okay. Now, what happens, what happens when you get upset with God? Oftentimes you say, well, look, I'm a little ticked. So, if I miss my quiet time today, no big deal. God let me down. Um, uh, next slide, please. There you go. No quiet time. Next, there. Okay. Um, I don't feel like going to worship this morning. Yeah, but you should be going. Bible says, forsaking not the assembling yourselves together. Yeah, I know, and I'm not really going to tell anybody this, but I say it to myself. Uh, God's dogged me a little bit. I'm, you know, I'm just not going to bend over backwards to uh, do everything for him. I'm getting a little, I'm getting a little bothered here. And we think that God can't help us with what's going on. Uh, this is a whole other topic. When I ask people today, what kind of doubt is the most common? They usually tell me when I think God is ignoring me. When I think God is not answering my pain. And God fades into the background. Kind of, you know, other things start replacing him. C.S. Lewis says that when we become a Christian, he said you have to keep relationships up. You have to, Lewis now, you have to practice worship and prayer and quiet time with the Lord. He says our beliefs will not just stay in our minds by themselves. They must be encouraged, and that's why we get together. That's why we fellowship. That's why we hang around with like-minded people, because otherwise God can fade, and that's horrible. We know folks that this has happened to. Okay, next. Here is the number one problem. The number one problem. It's all about what you tell yourself. In hundreds of psychological experiments, hundreds. The only time I've gone back to school, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, not a healthcare worker. But after I finished my PhD, I did go back to school to, to get one diploma, and I studied under the fellow that is usually voted. Psychologists have an interesting trend. They often vote for who's the most influential psychotherapist in the world. And the guy who has gotten it in the last 20 years more than anybody else is an atheist psychotherapist named Albert Ellis. Well, I got a chance to study with him and get a diploma in rational emotive behavior therapy. Sounds pretty cool, huh? But he, his group alone has hundreds of experiments, he says, that will do the following. Hundreds of experiments. Here's his his big teaching point that's gotten him on the map. Most of your pain, there are exceptions, most of your pain is not what happens to you. Yeah, well, you just don't know my boss. No, I don't. You know what happened when that guy 
plowed into me on the road the other day. No, I, I don't know what happened to you. You don't know my children and some issues. You don't know my spouse. You don't. I don't. But most pain, the worst pain, is not caused by what happens to us. Most of our pain is caused by how we download what happens to us. Most of our pain is caused by what we tell ourselves about what happens to ourselves, to us. And if you own it, I must really be a loser. You know, it's one thing when children are abused emotionally. But when the child starts owning it, I'm a loser. I'm stupid. I'll never amount to anything. I'm not going anywhere in life. It's twice as bad when they tell themselves the criticisms that other people are telling them. And so the issue is, what do we do? What do we tell ourselves? But here's the key. We cause most of our own pain. Now, here's the bad news. We cause most of our own pain. Here's the good news. Since I cause most of my pain, I can uncause most of my pain. I can quit doing what I'm doing. And most of that's on the next lecture. But let's talk about talk biblically about some of this. We respond poorly. We God should take care of my suffering. Why hasn't God stepped into my life? I've prayed about this for two weeks. I mean, you know, some people pray about this sort of thing for 20 years. And they say, God should take my suffering away. He hasn't. I'm a little upset. In fact, I wonder if God ever answers prayer. Or he's breaking his promises. People tell me that. I wish we had time to talk about this one. This isn't on the agenda for today. But this is an aside. In John 14 through 16... Three times, if you're going to memorize great verses, three times in John 14 to 16, we're told if we will pray a certain way, for example, pray in my name. If, you, if we will pray a certain way, Jesus said, my Father will answer your prayers. Well, I'm going to claim it. Three times Jesus said it. Red letter version in, the, in my Bible. If we pray this way, this way, and this way, God will answer our prayers. And then they don't happen. What are you going to say? God doesn't care. He breaks his promises. Jesus must not know what he was talking about. That's when you get really upset. You start saying those things to yourself. But guess what? In the exact same context in John 14 to 16, three other times, Jesus says, you're going to have issues in this world. You're going to have problems. Oh, I know, Lord, you're testing me, right? And I'm supposed to pray and my problems will go away, right? No, because one of the three times it says, you're going to die for your faith. Whoops. That's kind of the end of things on earth. So now, what does Jesus mean when he says, pray, and you'll get it? And what does he mean when he goes on and says, you're going to have issues? I mean, it's a, it's a serious sort of problem. But we don't take verses in context. We memorize the ones that we like and we ignore the ones we don't. And we conclude he's abandoned us or something worse. Next. This is the kind of caution that I'm working toward. 
If you say to yourself, and by the way, thinking it has the same effect as saying it in your own mind. And one more rule. The more forcefully you say it to yourself, the worse the pain is in general. But here's the, a crucial caution. If you think any of the following, God's let me down, broken his promises, he's dogged me, he said do this, I did it, promises don't work. Red letter verses, not good. I don't know what the issue is, but I'm really getting ticked here. And he's not answering my prayer. Okay. First of all, a theological lesson. God can't do those things. And it's true God wouldn't do those things. But here's the first point. God can't do those things. There are things that God cannot do. I remember the first time a good friend of mine asked me, can God make a rock so big you can't pick it up? And right away I saw the catch-22 and I went, wow, let me think about that. But it's a real easy answer. No. You just said he can't do something. Bible says God can't do all kinds of things. God can't lie. God can't die. He can't tempt you with evil. He can't be other than God. That's the main thing. His nature is the nature of God. God cannot be other than God. So God can't bring, can't break his promises. Even if he wanted to, which he doesn't. Think about that one. He can't break his promises, even if he wanted to, which he doesn't. He cannot break his promises. It goes against his nature. It's like breaking a, making a rock that's too big to pick it up. He can't do it. But here's the bad news. Here's the caution. If you think he's failed you, in your mind, he's a failure. You go, well, I'm just wrong then. You are, but here's the key. You'll live like he's failed you. You'll teach your kids like he's failed you. You'll treat your spouse like he's failed you. At work, Christianity kind of fades. You've got other things to do. God's dogging you. God can't dog you, but if you tell yourself he is, he is in your mind. And that means you'll live like God is letting you down. This is very, it's a very serious matter. Next. Do you ever think about this? Christianity is arguably the only religion in the world where suffering is part of our gospel. We do not deny suffering. We don't take the Eastern way out. Well, Suffering's not real. We don't go there. Suffering's not real. Suffering is so real that whenever the New Testament authors define the nature of the gospel, the factual side, now there's the commitment side, it's sort of like getting to know somebody really, really well for a long time, and then you say, I do. I do, only two words, but a lifetime of commitment. But there was the factual side first where you got to know that person. All right. The factual side of Christianity, the factual side of the gospel, whenever the New Testament defines the factual side, these three are always involved. Deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. Always. Deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. Deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. Always there. But what I say? Death. Death how? Crucifixion. I'm assuming most of you saw 
um, Suffering of the Christ, Gibson's movie. And you know how crucifixion may be the worst death anybody can undergo in the world. It might be. But suffering is built, real, live suffering is built right into the gospel. You can't avoid it, can't deny it, can't look the other way. But it is about how you download it. It is about what you do with it. Next. Let's take a look at Jesus' life. Did Jesus go through suffering? All right, let's look. Rejected by his family. How painful is that? It's happened to some of you. How painful is being rejected by your family? Next. By the way, that text right there, rejected by your family, in the Greek, they thought he's out of his mind. And I'm not sure how to explain all this, but it says his brothers and his mother. Maybe his mother hadn't quite worked it out in her mind yet, who her son was. But his family thought he lost his mind. Pretty serious. Then he says in the garden, take this cup from me. And in Luke, we're told he had drops of blood coming out of his head, which is a known medical condition, but it takes great stress to cause this condition. Jesus had a lot of pain. And how about, how about my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And too many times we're just really flippant about this. We go, wow. He memorized scripture. That's Psalm 22, verse 1. Yes, he did. Well, then we should memorize scripture. Yes, we should, but you're missing the point. The point is Jesus felt such pain that he wondered why God had forsaken him. Didn't Jesus know that God couldn't forsake him? That's like making a rock too big you can't. Didn't he know that? He knew it, but something's going on here. Let's take a look. Incredibly, watch what scripture says. Jesus learned obedience by his suffering. What? Most of us think Jesus didn't have to learn anything. But how about his suffering taught him obedience? That's the book of Hebrews. All right, let's look at another one. Jesus was completed through his suffering. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. He grew from his suffering. He learned from his suffering. He was completed through his suffering. So we're kind of getting to an application. We're working down to an application here. I mean, sort of right off the bat, why not me? If the Son of God went through this, who do I think I am? That I need to be, I need to be taken from all this or God's let me down. Really? Well, it's part of the gospel, and Jesus himself went through it. Suffering is a convincing teacher. When one of my brothers, a pastor, uh, was going through a really hard time in the ministry, his wife said to my mom, she said, why is it that we almost never grow until we're suffering? Suffering causes Christian growth like nothing else. Well, that's kind of close to Hebrews. By suffering, Jesus learned. 
By suffering, Jesus grew. By suffering, Jesus was completed. All in the book of Hebrews. And we're told over and over again in Scripture, over and over and over again, three times in John 14 to 16, that we'll share a suffering. How many sermons have you heard on suffering in the sense of promise you you're going to go through it? How many sermons have you heard on persecution? Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Look what's happening in the Middle East right now. The Bible promises these things. But in the West, we're so immune to them. The minute they happen, we're all about getting away from it. And we're all about blaming God for not taking it away. All right, I suffered. Five minutes is long enough, thank you. Please take it away from me. Next. All right, here's a great text. We carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. This this whole text, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, going back to about verse 7 and coming up to the end of the chapter is where Paul says when we're going through things, we concentrate on eternal life, not on our present suffering. It's, It's a wonderful text. One of the best, to me, one of my favorite texts. Especially verses 17 and 18. They're just fantastic. Here's another one. Paul's talking again. And you know that you're going to have to go through these things. And our job, as the scriptures over and over again, is to endure. Another good one is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and following. Next. You can just read that there. Look at this verse. I'm going to come back to this one a little bit later. But this is, a, this is major. Paul? Are you in your right mind? I want to know Jesus and his resurrection right on. I'm there. But I want to fellowship with him in his sufferings? Hey, Paul, I got this counselor. Do you need to go to somebody? No, Paul thinks that Christians should think like this. This is it's all over Scripture. Next. I've got a couple questions for you. If you're sitting here today and you're wondering, yeah, but you should you should see what I'm going through. Or I've prayed about this for a really long time. Or God should take this away from me. And remember, it's not just what you say. It's what you think. So if you're thinking this to yourself, it does the same kind of damage. Here's my first question for you. Do you deserve to suffer or do I deserve to suffer any less than Jesus did? It's part of the gospel. Jesus went through the worst kind possible. He cried out to God. God didn't take him away from it. His own father didn't take him away from it. We're told we're going to be going through that. And we're told Jesus learned through that. And then we say, but I don't want it. Do we deserve to suffer less than Jesus? Another one. Next. Here's a follow-up. Jesus learned through suffering. Do you learn faster? Do you learn faster than Jesus without suffering? Now remember the biblical picture. 
part of the gospel. Jesus went through it. Jesus grew from it. We don't like it, but we don't think we should go through it. There's a disconnect. And don't forget, Scripture tells us over and over again, we will suffer and we'll suffer persecution. So why aren't we more prepared? Next. Here's the way we come back. Why me? Next. Why were they healed? Not me. Next. God doesn't care about me. So I never said that. Do you think that? Same difference. God doesn't care. And there's nothing I can do about it. It's a lie. That's a lie. You know what you can do? You know what I can do? You know what? Even though the psychologist who came to see my wife that day was a secular psychologist, he came because there was something she could do. He came because she could start telling herself different things right now. So I'm going to end with just a few suggestions here of things you can say and trying to get on this path of healing. Did it ever occur to you that God did answer Jesus' prayer? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I pictured God telling me this when my wife was dying. I pictured him telling me this. But I answered my son's prayer. And I'm responding to him. What do you mean you answered his prayer? I raised him on Sunday morning. I said an answer to prayer with all due respect. I raised him on Sunday morning, but he had to die first. Oh no, are you telling me my wife is going to die? Are you telling me she's going to die? And I started measuring my life in shocks. Things that people tell me or doctors would tell me or this is what happens with stomach cancer or it goes here next or something like that. And, and it was horrible. The things I learned. He raised his son from the dead. What relevance does that have to us? Paul gets the point, and that's the verse we just read a minute ago. He said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. There may be sufferings until that point, but the Lord is going to raise us. And in the other passage we read, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul tells us to shift our thinking to eternity and not to concentrate so much on the present. In fact, in one of my favorite texts in the Bible, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I have heard a lot of sermons on to live is Christ. I've heard almost no sermons on to die is gain. It's the second half of the same sentence. And then he says two verses later, I prefer to die and be with Christ. Because it's better. The Greek there, it's better. It's an emphatic positive. So it's sometimes translated like this. I prefer to die and be with Christ, which is better, comma, far better. Like, if you didn't get my point the first time, I'm going to repeat it. Heaven is not just out of this world spatially, but heaven is outside this world 
as a blessing. And Paul wants to go there having learned, having grown, having having kept his body under control. He learns it. Our resurrection is the answer that follows our own suffering. Lastly, here's how you can get some emotional relief. Here's some things you can do. Expect to suffer. And if God takes you from it, praise the Lord. But don't get upset when he doesn't do it. Expect to suffer and you will grow just like Jesus. And watch what you're telling yourself. Watch what you're saying. Celebrate eternity. Even as Paul tells us to celebrate eternity. Another one of his verses, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body is present with the Lord. Next. Change our attitudes and gain relief. I'm telling you, this it, whether you see it, the possibility of it working or not, Secular psychotherapists, they don't use the Bible verses, but they practice changing your thinking. It's called the cognitive revolution today. Christian psychologists do it. You can pay $150 or $200 an hour to learn how to do this. In fact, one UCLA medical doctor who specializes in obsessive compulsive disorder, here's how he starts his book. Change your thinking and change your brain chemistry. You think changing your thinking doesn't do anything? You change your brain chemistry. And on the back of his book, because he specializes in OCD, on the back of his book, he's got the same person with two brain scans. The first one, the person is in the middle of an OCD episode. And about one-third to one-half of their brain is blood red on this brain scan. Then... The person practices techniques just like these, and they re-image the brain, and the blood red part is a pinpoint in the middle of his brain. The pain has gone down significantly, and all he's done is said different things to himself. That's why the psychologist was coming into my wife's room that day. It works. But I find the same teaching in Scripture. Paul's not the only one who says that I may know him and the power of resurrection. Folks, this is, this is an amazing message from Scripture, all from start to finish. You will suffer. I will suffer. You'll be persecuted. I'll be persecuted. Don't forget the Beatitudes. Persecution doesn't mean you're going to be beaten up. Persecution can be harsh words that people say against you. And the Beatitudes... In Matthew chapter 5, when people say all manner of evil things against you. Persecution comes in a lot of forms. But the worst thing you can do is download trash, download bad theology, download woe is me. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. But if you want to get over your suffering, you change what you say to yourself. And your suffering could be like the two, same person, but the two brain scans where the suffering, measurable photograph in the sense of a brain scan, it can be working for us in our own lives. By the way, let me recommend a book if you want to read one that does this, Telling Yourself the Truth by William Backus and Marie Chappian. It's a bestseller. Backus and Chappian, Telling Yourself the Truth. It'll tell you how to do this. It's very simple, and you don't have a lot of pages to read. But it's life, absolutely life transforming. In fact, I'll tell you this, 
next to scripture, it's the book that's changed my life more than any book I've ever read in my, in my whole career. It's life transforming. So think about it and what scripture teaches. But scripture gives us a path to victory. Let's take that path. Let's turn it over to the Lord. Let's change our thinking. Let's change your brain chemistry. And here's the key. Let's start growing deeper and deeper with regard to the Lord. Good morning. Glad to be with you folks. Naming some uh, areas here earlier, apologetics, head coach. I lived in Montana for three years. <laughs> and that's where I started my teaching career. What city are you folks from? Cowspell. Where? Oh, Cow- Cowspell. I was from uh, Lewistown. It's right in the middle of the state. Actually, probably the three best years of my life. I'm going to tell you something. Well, this is California. Um, I'm from Detroit. I hear there's a lot of Michigan people here, but I don't ask your permission to say this. I'll just tell you my view. Detroit's a great place to be from. Um, Wherever you are, it's a great place to be from. Um, But I thought it was cold in Michigan until I moved to Montana. We had a week every year where it was actual temperature, 40 to 45 degrees below zero. And the chill index was minus 70 to minus 80 for a week. And they told the California students, if you break down, do not get out and walk. You will be dead in 15 minutes. So. But it's beautiful. (laughs) Okay. Our topic this morning is emotional doubt. And this may be, doubt in general, emotional doubt in particular, may be the most common issue that Christians face in terms of numbers, in terms of percentages. How do you know? Because virtually everybody asks major questions of their faith that kind of churn them up at some time after their salvation. In fact, I've been doing this topic for a long, long time because I went through 10 years of doubt, more than that actually, but 10 straight years, and then partial years after that. And I have spoken on the topic often, um, probably a hundred times, and now the resurrection this afternoon is about 2,000 times, seriously. But this is about a hundred times, a lot of people want to hear this. I don't mean my lecture, but I mean, you know, help me. And I've asked people in the crowd, if you have never doubted, and, and feel free to do this today, if you've never doubted, I'm going to give you definition in a moment. Come up and tell me. I have had one person in 40 years of doing this tell me they've never doubted. One person. And I don't trust that person. (laughs) So it's tricky. Now, there's a few missing slides at the beginning of this, and this is my fault. Not your people's fault. I did not catch it until I was in the hotel room last night. So, 
I'm going to go ahead and talk about those areas. There's simply not slides on this for the first uh, few. But let me give you a definition and tell you what doubt's about, and then we'll be ready to kick into the PowerPoint. First of all, definition. I'm going to define doubt as uncertainty. If you said give me one synonym, I'd take the word uncertainty. Questions would be close. Uncertainty regarding God or our relationship to him. Doubt. Uncertainty regarding God or our relationship to him. And it frequently manifests itself in these sorts of areas. Does God really exist? I mean, seriously. With the problem of evil in the world, really? Or an evidence is questioned. How do we know Jesus is really raised from the dead? You know, don't get me wrong, I'm a believer. I sometimes I just need a little lift. All right, here's another kind. Why do bad things happen to good people? And here's the one that I hear most commonly. Why is God ignoring me? Why don't my prayers get past the ceiling? Those are four different types. Factual or philosophical issues. Questions of personal assurance. Questions regarding pain and suffering. And questions concerning my feeling abandoned by God. I divide these kinds of doubts into three species, only one of which we're talking about today, emotional. But I divide doubt after 500 plus conversations with doubters, including many conversations with unbelieving doubters. They don't believe, but they want to talk about their doubts. You know what all human beings share? I mean, why do do non-Christians doubt? Two rules. True of everybody in this room. We're all finite. If you doubt that, just ask yourself, do you think you're God? If not, you're finite. And number two, we're all sinners. Being finite in a sinner will get you in trouble somewhere in your life. Usually a lot of places. But unbelievers are finite and sinners, and they have issues. So in talking about all these folks, I've noticed three different species of doubt. And I kind of gave them all just a moment ago. But I would divide doubt into factual doubt, give me more evidence, or I got some, I've got some philosophical issues. I might say factual or philosophical doubt. Number two, this one, emotional doubt. And I'll tell you why I do it secondly in a moment. And thirdly, volitional doubt. Now in a way, all doubt is volitional. Because volition has to do with your will. But if you're doubting, you will to doubt. You may not want to, you may not like it, but you will to do it or you wouldn't be doing it. But that's not what, the way I'm using the word volitional. I'm using volitional doubt in a more advanced sense. I think this is the potentially most dangerous species of doubt. Say, so, well, why aren't you talking about that today then? Because it actually affects far fewer people than emotional doubt. But volitional doubt, let, let, me, let me define it with an example. Maybe you know somebody in the church like this. Uh, let's pick on the men. Let's say there's a guy in the church, and for 30 years, he's been a leader. 
He sold every major position in the church. He's been Sunday school superintendent, an adult Sunday school teacher. He's a deacon. He's an elder. Whatever you have, he's on those committees. He's in the pulpit uh, supply, anything. And then all of a sudden, he doesn't come to church anymore. Now his wife's here, and his kids are here, but he doesn't come. And when someone starts talking to him, he's kind of a man's man. And when you start talking to him, he gets a little ornery, you know. In hockey terms, he's ready to drop the gloves. So people leave him alone. But there's some people who can talk to him. His best buddies, his golf partner, his fishing buddies. They have an in with him that nobody else has because they know him real well. And those guys are the guys that are in best position to talk to the volitional doubter. And if you say, this might surprise you, you might say to that person, so you've uh, given up your faith, huh? Not at all. What makes you think that? Well, because you used to be doing everything and now you're doing nothing. Not in our church nor any other church. What's going on? I don't know. You think it's not true? No, it's true. You think it's true? Yeah, it's true. Then why have you stopped? Mm, God and I don't get along so well anymore. And what you find out is, doubt often goes down this path. It starts as a factual issue. And that's the time to answer. You might think factual doubts are the heavy ones, the left brain ones that... Stop them when they're at that point. Factual doubt that's not answered. It's not a nice word, but for you to get the sense. Factual doubt that's not answered often festers. And festering doubt becomes emotional. Just like an untreated cut can be infected. And when doubt, emotional doubt, is not treated, it often changes to volitional. And now think about it in everyday life. You know something about a person, factually. You say, I do, which means you're committed to them, like you say, I do to Jesus. All right. There's an issue in your family, and it starts out factually, but people don't talk to each other. So it becomes emotional, and it can't be brought up, or both sides just get really upset. And so it often changes to a you stay in your half of the house and I'll stay in my half of the house kind of deal. Well, we often say to God in that last state, you stay in your half of the universe and I'll stay in my half of the universe. Are you there? Yeah, I know you're there. You're not being very nice to me. And so I think we just have to agree to stand off. And it's his buddies who have the best chance of getting into him. Oz Guinness who wrote a really good book on doubt in the 70s. Oz Guinness called this time, with this kind of person, a time to warn. A time to warn. I'm not discussing whether the person's lost or not lost salvation. I'm not even bringing that up. We're talking about a soul here. You know what's interesting about people who think you never lost your salvation or those who think you can? With a guy like this who hasn't come back for 30 years, those who think you can lose your salvation say, he had it. He lost it. And those who think he can't, you can't lose it, says, they say he never had it in the first place. Here's the bottom line. According to both sides, this guy's unsaved. 
Now, it may not be true. He might be saved. But that's why Asgidus calls it a time to warn. Serious time. All right. That's a rundown of three species. Factual, emotional, volitional. Why am I, for the rest of this time, gearing in on emotional? Emotional doubt is by far the most common. By far the most hurtful. The most painful. And maybe the least dangerous. How's that for a combination? It's like the flu. You can feel like you're dead, but you're not usually going to die of it. Emotional doubt's like that. It kills, emotional doubt kills very few people, but you may feel like you're dying. Emotional doubt is very, very painful. So, I do this one because it's not as serious as advanced volitional doubt, but I'm talking to far more people trying to do away with some of your pain But it's not a lecture on pain and suffering per se. It's on working with emotional doubt. Okay, one more category, and then we're going to get to the first slide. The key to emotional doubt is telling yourself a lot of garbage. Why is that true? Because in contemporary medicine and contemporary psychology, I am not a psychologist. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist. Just been around people long enough to see this at work. And in contemporary terms, we cause most of our own pain. We cause most of our pain, not by what, most of our pain, there are exceptions, most of our pain does not come from what happens to us, but from how we download what happens to us. Use one common example, emotional abuse of children. It's horrible to call kids names and say things about them and ride them, especially if it's not true. But it's more serious when the child owns it. When the child says, I'm a loser, I'll never pass an exam, I'll never amount to anything, I'm never going to get a good job, I won't have any good friends, I'm not going to play sports, I can't think clearly, I'm just a loser. How do you know? Well, that's what everyone tells me. The more serious is when I own the criticism. Now, in this case, with the emotional doubt, I'm owning the criticism for a very easy reason. What what do you think? I'm stupid? You think I'm going to lie to myself? I might lie to you. I hope not, but I won't lie to me. That's counterproductive. So what I do? I lie to me. And on these two slides that are, last two slides that are missing... I have a list of 10 lies that we frequently, we could say something nicer, we could call them misbeliefs, but I call them lies to, so you get the point. And almost all of us say these things to ourselves at some point. Here's some lies of emotional doubt. Godly men and women never doubt. It's a lie. Doubt is almost never confronted in the pages of Scripture. Really? Did you ever hear of Job? Oh, I'm not counting Job. That's a whole book. He, he, he was a real loser. I'm not talking about him. Okay. Well, who's the next two candidates after Job who had the most episodes of doubt? Only Abraham, the man of faith, and David, 
the man after God's own heart. And they have episode after episode after episode. So not just Job, Abraham, David, Jeremiah. Jeremiah says at one point when he's, he's called the weeping prophet, we probably would have taken him in for depression medicine. <clears throat> There's nothing wrong with medicine. I'm just saying that teasingly. But Jeremiah says at one point, he says, I want to question you about your justice. I don't think you're just. That's in the Bible? Yeah, it's in the book of Jeremiah. All right, well, all your examples are Old Testament examples. We don't have too many doubters in the New Testament, right? Right? How about John the Baptist? Is in prison in Luke 7, if you want to check the text out. And he sends his two disciples to Jesus. And listen to John's question. It's a twofold question or two questions. Are you the Messiah? That's good. We're getting right into the list here. Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for another? What? John, what did you see when you baptized him? Yeah, I I know, I know. But just wondering. I'm just saying. How about that second part of the question? Or should we be looking for another? There's this guy down the street, his name's Moon. His name's Hari, his name's Krishna. This big fat bald guy, his name's Buddha. Should we be following one of these guys? John? Didn't John call, didn't Jesus call John the most righteous man ever born? When did he call John that? Right then and there. Because when John's disciples turn around and start walking back to him, that's when Jesus said he's the most righteous man ever born of a woman. Wait a minute. Doubting John is the most righteous? Yeah. Hmm. Must be pretty common then. Here's another one. Doubt is always sinful. Well, if so, why did Jesus just compliment John as being the most righteous man ever born? Paul, his thorn in the flesh. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Another misbelief. Doubt gets old, gets stronger and more common with age. You know what the survey says? Eh. Doubt is most common between the ages of 13 and 33. And folks who are in their 70s and 80s, this, is, this survey was done with 2,000 people. People in their 70s and 80s had the lowest incidence of doubt, 2 to 3%. Interesting, huh? So, if we cause most of our suffering by telling ourselves false things, like the child saying, I'm a loser, and all those different categories, why would we say these things to ourselves? Like, here's one example. Your pastor preaches a sermon on the truth of resurrection of Jesus during Easter season, and all it takes for you to upset yourself is this. What if we're wrong? 
I mean, how many resurrections have you seen? What if we're wrong? What if I were born in India? I'd probably be a Hindu. What if I were born in Tibet? I would probably be a Buddhist. What if? And you can upset all the evidences in the world with a what if question. But notice what a what if question is. It's nothing. There's no evidence in a what if question. You can what if anything. If you think, what if I'm going to get killed going home today in my car? You may never leave this church for the rest of your life. But we would off, we what if that kind of stuff all the time. What if my favorite restaurant, what if poison fell into the food accidentally or not? We can what if anything. One of the best ways to tell emotional doubt is a what if question. Here's another really well, good way to, uh, to identify doubt as emotional. I've had three people contact me just this last week. One talk about doubt. I don't know any of them. And I asked the young lady who called me. Uh, she's a nurse. She said, I really need some help. I said, is it painful? She said, it's really painful. I said, then it's emotional. Emotional doubt, by and large, is the only one that really hurts. So a lot of tricks to the trade here. But if it's emotional doubt, first step, identifying it. Are you what ifing? Is it painful? Does it really nag you? And by the way, the kind of people who have it the most are two personality types. Anxious personalities, people who are always what ifing. In the 60s, it was what if Russia pushes the button? In the 80s and 90s, if what if I'm the first person to get AIDS from a towel in the bathroom? And today, I mean, just a few months ago, it was, what if I get Ebola? But every little time slot has its what-if questions. Anxiety. And secondly, obsessive-compulsive personalities. Not obsessive-compulsive disorder, just obsessive-compulsive personality types. Obsessive-compulsive personality types can be very helpful. Almost everybody who gets a lot done has... Uh, obsessive compulsive tendencies. I've got a psychologist buddy who says if you've ever done a master's or doctoral dissertation, you've got some OC tendencies, but they're good. OC tendencies are good until they start messing your life up. That's how they define it being a disorder, is when you start doing silly things. But as long as it just keeps your nose to the grindstone, it's good. Obsessive compulsive personalities are good, but they tend toward being doubters. All right, enough. That's how you identify which kind of doubt you have. But I think two of the easiest ways do you ask what if questions and does it hurt? All right, next. I'm having trouble reading that one back there. Which biblical cases do you think would be emotional? I gave you an example. I think John's doubt is emotional. John the Baptist. Think about it. He's on his deathbed, so to speak. He never gets out of prison alive. And as long as he was out in the countryside baptizing people and doing his thing, 
he was good to go. But when he can't work, and he's kept alone, and nobody's around him, he's in isolation, he's prone to doubt. A lot of us are like that. C.S. Lewis says, It is much easier to doubt God when I'm in a strange hotel room than when I'm in my own bedroom. That is very insightful. And it's also a sign of an emotional doubter. Next. <laughs> I can look at this. Uh, there are many techniques in the Bible to go after emotional doubt. And uh, I, I mean, I could read verses up here to you today. Dozens. But uh, let's move on. Go ahead. This might be the key one. This is my favorite passage. This is the beginning of my favorite passage. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. The Greek there, it says, the King James says, be careful for nothing. The word is, be anxious for nothing. And the Greek there indicates that Paul's audience was currently in an anxiety state. At least a number of the people to whom he was writing, they were worked up about something. And he's telling them, be anxious for nothing. All right, next. How about that? This is one of two times in this passage where Paul says either the peace of God or the God of peace will be with you. All right. Next. And finally, change your thinking. This is the best change your thinking verse in Scripture. Um, let, let, me, let me back up a couple to, uh, let me go back to verse 6. First two things you can do. Paul's going to make four suggestions here. I don't think these four suggestions are holy in the sense that you've got to do these four in just this order every time. Because other passages put them in different order. Other passages give different things you can do. But there's four things here from Paul. And I, I went right past the first two. First one you can do is pray. Now Paul doesn't really tell us how to do that. But Peter does. First Peter 5, 7. Casting all your, there's that word careful again, but casting all your cares, King James, but the word is anxieties. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So first step, give it to the Lord. Of the four steps, this is my most difficult one. We, also, we all have strengths and weaknesses. This is my most difficult one. When I give the Lord one of my worries, I usually take it back before I get off the floor by, beside my bed. Some of you may be very good at prayer and giving to the Lord, and I'd say go after this one. All right, but the other thing, back to Philippians, is with thanksgiving, and it's so powerful, I make it a separate point. Now, this is a Baptist church. I was raised in a German Baptist church. Things have changed. But the 60s and 70s, you wouldn't have seen very many Baptists in the average Baptist church, in my estimation. You wouldn't see very many of them raising hands during prayer or during a song. 
And when you did, it always attracted attention. We'd be up in the balcony, and somebody would elbow somebody. Wow. Unbelievable. You know why we didn't put our hands up, at least in our church? Somebody might think you're charismatic. Remember the rivalry in those days? But those Baptists who tried praise got into praise. I have done this with a lot of congregations, with thousands of people, and I ask this question. How many of you, we, obviously we haven't rehearsed this, how many of you have been in a worked-up emotional state of some sort and you've spent at least five to ten minutes praising the Lord or worshiping? How many of you? Worked-up state and you've praised for at least five or ten minutes? A lot of you. Okay, we haven't rehearsed it. Somebody shout out. What happens to your anxieties when you take... Uh, the path of praise or thanksgiving. What happens? Someone's going to have to... I, they go away? That's a, great, that's a great goal. It goes away. What else? What's, it becomes less important. <clears throat> For sure, have you ever gone to bed... Worried about something, worrying yourself to death, and you wake up the next morning and you think of the same topic and it doesn't even bother you the next morning? Nothing's changed, it just doesn't bother you. And it's like, oh, the game's on today. Wow, well that must have been a horrible thing last night. (laughs) All right, so it changes. What else? Pardon? You refocus. That's a good one. You refocus on a different topic, hopefully on God himself. I'm waiting for one. It'll come up if we wait long enough, but here's the one I'm really interested in. When someone says, I change my perspective. I look at the issue differently. Well, how differently? That could be a bunch of answers, but here's a nice one. I started looking at it from God's point of view, and it became very small. This, this is a powerful step to thank thanksgiving and praise. And raised in a German Baptist church, I didn't learn to do a lot of it. Years later, I've started doing a lot of it. It is life transforming. There's virtually no power like thanksgiving and praise. And practice it when it hurts the most, which is when you'd rather worry. I hate worry. That's why I'm going to sit here and do it for the next 15 minutes. Put your favorite tape on. Have songs that you put together a CD of worry music. Your favorite worry music. Try it. It really works. Then the third step is... Changing your thinking, verse 8. Now, if we get the verse back up there again, this is what I call a a goody two-shoes verse. It's like, wonderful, great, until I need it. Then it's the most powerful verse in the Bible. Whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. 
If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, there's that word again. Think on these things. That word think in Greek is a very strong term. It is, some, for example, New King James translates it meditate. What's meditate? Meditation is to think deeply and single-mindedly about a particular topic. The key to meditation is to concentrate, to be purposeful. And Paul says, meditate on these things. Change your thinking. Be firm with yourself. You know what the studies teach us? The stronger you say it to yourself the faster you get a handle on the issue. And I'll give you an everyday example. Mom calling you by your middle name. (laughs) David Jacob. You get in here right now. Uh Uh-oh. Now, you need to talk to yourself that way. Now, someone might think you're nuts, but I tell people, do this when you're in the car if you want, that nobody can hear you. And besides, if you look like you're angry at somebody, they'll just think you have a Bluetooth in or something. But talk to yourself and picture grabbing yourself by the shirt collar and pulling yourself up and saying, you're being stupid. Now, you're an adult, so we're not talking about beating up on children here. But, and don't internalize it like you're saying you're a loser. But you have to say to yourself, your actions are wrong. Well, I didn't do anything. Okay. Did you or did you not just what if that? Wow. Yeah, I guess I forgot. I I did that. Cool. Just go off. Just go ahead and go worry. I'll just let you go. This is you talking to you. How many of you have seen the Bob Newhart counseling thing, the five-minute deal where he counsels that woman? It's on YouTube. He says, what is it? He charges $5 for five minutes. Nobody ever needs more than five minutes of counseling, he says. So she comes in, and she says, I'm afraid of being buried in a box. And the first thing he does is, like it bothers him too. And when she comes in, he's washing his hands in the bathroom off the study. She goes, and I wash my hands a whole bunch of times. He goes, that's not a problem. I do that all day long. It's just be buried in a box. And he goes, what can I do? He says, all right, well, I've got, I've got a remedy for you. She says, what's that? He goes, stop it. <laughs> well, actually, she goes to take notes out of her purse, paper. And he says, what are you doing? She says, I'm going to take notes out. I'm going to take some notes. He said, I don't think you're going to need notes. Why not? Um, Most people find they can get this without taking notes. What's the answer? Stop it! And he he shocks her. Stop it! She goes, how much time has this taken? He goes, "Uh, three minutes and 22 seconds. Oh. Well, I've got a minute and 38 seconds left, so I'm going to use the whole thing. (laughs) And she goes, well... And she keeps pushing him. And all he says is, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. And the counseling session's over. There is some value to that when you're grabbing yourself by the shirt. You're going, stop it. 
Do you realize you are deepening your pain? I guess you like pain, right? This is you talking to you. I guess you like pain, right? I guess you don't want to get over this. I guess you don't want to be able to rest in the Lord. I know what it is. You don't like assurance, right? And when you talk strongly to yourself, like mom using your middle name, it works faster. All right, the last one. I call it practice, practice, practice. Is verse 9. And what Paul says is, the things you've seen in me, do them. And the Greek, the Greek for do is, NIV, put it into practice. The King James says, do these things. The Greek says, keep doing them. Or, practice. So, pray. Try Thanksgiving. Change what you tell yourself. And do it all the time. When should I do it? You'll get a kick out of this. The number one time to do it is when you're doubting. Duh. The number two time to do it is when you're not doubting. You know why? Because you're you. You have a certain personality. And you're going to go back to this. That's who you are. You're going to go back to it. So when you really need it, do it because it'll lower the pain. You can watch the pain levels go down. You really, really can. But since you're you and you're going to keep doing it, work on it when you're not doing it so that the pain levels stay down. I'll give you a real simple example. I'm a football fan. Football and hockey, two best sports in the world. Sometimes on Monday afternoon, you know, I'm going to really date myself here, but I don't know contemporary music. So in the 60s, the carpenters sang, rainy days and Mondays always get me down. Could be a bad Monday. Could be rough. And somebody had to come in over the weekend and pile all their mess on your desk because your desk was clean when you left Friday, and now it's, you're just sick of it. And you're mumbling to yourself about how you're sick of how everybody gives you the work, and you get up to go get a drink or something, And you guys, maybe it's women too, but this happens to me all the time. I go, I can't stand this. Wait a minute. It's Monday. Monday night football. Yes. (laughs) Now, I don't know what that is for you. But here's my question. Does it work? What does it do to you? Whatever the equivalent picture happening in your life. Oh, this is the night I'm going out with my girlfriends. We're having dinner and, yes, get to get away. Whatever. My my husband's taking care of the kids. I get to go out. Yes. What does that do instantly? Pardon? It it lifts you up immediately. It changes you. And you know what? When you go back to your desk, here's what happens. Here's what, when you go, yes, here's what you're saying. You're going, I can handle any abuse until 5 o'clock. And then I'm going home. And you dare not call me when the game comes on. Of course, out here in California, it comes on about noon. So I could never live on the West Coast. Of course, you got TiVo, so you're okay now. 
But that's what you tell yourself. I can handle the pain. But I got my munchies already and my coffee or my whatever, and I'm going to sit there and in my man cave and turn on whatever. But you change your whole outlook. And you kind of can, you're feeling pretty good, and you can work through the day because of tonight. Why can't Christians, over and over again in Scripture, we're told to work through the day because heaven's coming? I know that may not sound like a huge thing for some of you. But if you were ever a doubter of the, of the type that needed assurance, you would give, as one lady told me one time, she would literally give me her right arm. She said, you can cut it off if I could have assurance of my salvation. And I laughed and I said, yeah. She goes, I'm not kidding. If you said cut it off and never doubt again, you got my arm. And that's my right arm, too. I'd have to learn how to do everything left-handed. I'm willing. That's how painful it was. You can have it. So, for her, for the person who wants assurance, the hope or knowledge of heaven is the biggest blessing you can give them. The Bible says over and over again, concentrate on what's ahead of us. Paul says, Philippians 1, 23, I desire to die and be with Christ, which is better by far. I want to go there. Okay, next. You know what? I'm going to skip this slide. We talked about anybody who was stayed around the first hour. I talked about this for a while, but let's just go down. There's several. Keep going. Keep going. Okay. Here's some additional things you can do. I've got four minutes according to my time, so I'm going to move here. This is about a half dozen of these. All right, first of all, emotional doubt is not evidence against Christianity. It's nothing. It's you being churned up. It's not evidence against Christianity, too. Do you know that emotional doubt proves you're a Christian many times? What do you think? You would care if you weren't a Christian? I only worry about things I care about. How about you? Do you worry about a football team winning when you can't stand them? No. You only worry about your children because they're your children. And that's your God. Next. Minimize the problem. Tell yourself why it's not the end of the world and why it's not what you think it is. Because we tell ourselves all kinds of bad things when we're doubting. Next. It usually only lasts a very short period of time. Like I said, it might worry you last night, and when you get up in the morning, you don't worry about it anymore. Next. Change the subject quickly, forcefully, and totally. One of the best ways is that, what do you think you're doing to yourself? Forcefully. Use your middle name. Next. Don't argue when you're in an emotional mood. I'm going to let that one go. Go ahead. Continue the whole time to affirm your faith. Epi Meyer of the last generation. He said, here's a prayer for you. He said, pray like this. Lord, I'm not in the best mood today. I'm a little anxious. But Lord, in my heart of hearts, you know I love you. I know I love you. I'm committed to you. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And until that moment comes, just remind me that I am still in you because I love you, Lord, with all my heart. 
Try that prayer. Next. Meditate on a biblical hero. We gave you a list earlier. Next. Be tenacious. The harder you do it, the faster it works. Next. Final checklist. You got to identify it to make sure it's emotional. You're asking what if questions are painful too. Apply biblical suggestions. Three. That's one we skipped, so go on. And use that list of additional helps we just did. So, mix and match. There's no holy list. Try it. Use the ones that work. But since it's your personality, it may not work first time every time. But since it is you, you may not uh, get rid of all of it, but you can get rid of enough of it so it doesn't bother you anymore. It's a real possibility. And this method really, really works. That's my promise. That's the promise of those who give it. Try it. You'll like it because it reduces pain. And what you get a deal is growth of the Lord. I am 25 seconds early. But thank you. Thank you. And like I said, apply, apply the truth. I'm going to make use of this whole stage. I'm thinking up those stairs might be pretty cool, too. We'll see. All right. This is my favorite topic in the world. Because it rescued me from 10 years of factual doubt. I won't say any more about that. I've talked about doubt enough. But when I was going through my doubts... I had a bunch of people come up to me and say, well, you know, Christianity's got a lot of great evidence. Check this out. Check this out. Check this out. And I checked out these different evidences, and some of them I just thought were lousy arguments, to tell you the truth. Some of them I thought were decent, but not, you know, as powerful as they could be. But after probably two years into my doubts, it occurred to me that if the resurrection had happened, of all the arguments I heard, there's another one that had some potential, but, that, but I thought the resurrection was the only one that could bear the burden of the truth of the entire Christian message. And that's what I'm going to try to give you just a little glimpse of today. Now, I'm going to talk about how you do history and how the resurrection qualifies. Now, usually, people are going to tell you, skeptics, they're going to tell you, we don't have enough evidence in the New Testament. We don't know who wrote the Gospels. That's a pretty, pretty common view today. But they like Paul. They like seven of the 13 books that bear Paul's name. More about that in a little while. So, I'm going to use the data which critics are willing to admit. And hopefully, you'll get an idea of why it is, in my estimation, why it is that the resurrection deserves the place it has in the New Testament. Namely, there's over 300 verses in the New Testament of the resurrection of Jesus, over 300 verses. And it is said to be the center of apologetics, Of course, it's the center of soteriology, 
salvation. And it's the center of almost every area of practice in the New Testament and almost every area of theology, besides soteriology and apologetics. It's related to just everything in 300 verses. In fact, so much so that one of my students, I, I mentioned that I started teaching out of Montana. And uh, there was a student there from Portland. And he said to me, he wasn't a particularly good student. He was a fun guy to be with, but he didn't excel in the schoolwork. And he said, whenever I take one of your exams, and I don't know what word goes in the blank, I put, I put the word resurrection, and I know I will get at least half credit. The, the reason he knew he was going to get at least half credit was because Habermas believes the resurrection related to everything. So sooner or later, it's going to answer this question. So he actually took one of my exams, church history exam, with a lot of blanks in it. I think he just guessed down true-false. Just, And then he got to the fill in the blanks, and he went, resurrection, 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 resurrection. Turned the page, resurrection, resurrection. Got, ha- got tired about halfway down the page. It was about a seven-page exam. He filled out a page and a half, closed it, turned it in. So I tried to reward him. I usually gave him 50%, which was an F. <laughs> One time the students put a skit on, and they were making fun of the faculty members. It was a lot of fun. And my little son was about three years old. And... They said, hey, the other day, we met Robbie walking down the street. And we said, Rob, nice day, isn't it? And Robbie said, what does that have to do with the resurrection? (laughs) There's a lot of ways to look at this topic. I look at it like a diamond, a many-faceted diamond. Turn the resurrection this way. And it's the best evidence for Christianity. Turn it just a little bit, and it comes to the aid of our doubts. Turn it again this way, and it's the center of the gospel. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Keep right on going. It's related to everything, all the way through the second coming, all the way through practice, the reason we do what we do, and believe what we believe. I'm going to direct your attention today to just two passages of Scripture. And why these? Well, because I can make my whole case on two passages. You say, well, wait a minute. You said you're doing this according to a skeptic's argument. I am. But you're going right to the New Testament. I am. Skeptics don't care. Now, here's my caveat. I'm talking about skeptical scholars. You have to be a skeptical scholar. Not the kind of guys we see today who are scholars because I I love this kind of response. How many books have you written? Oh, 40. How many are in the resurrection? 20. I'm an author. Are you? You look like you're about 15. I didn't say that. I'm an author. Oh, yeah? What have you written? Oh, I do a blog once a month. Okay. 
We have a world full of scholars today. One guy, a teenager, says, advertises himself, that he is an expert in ancient history and ancient Middle Eastern languages. He's a teenager and has no college credits in this area. Now, I suppose possibly, but I'm thinking we make ourselves scholars. What I'm talking about is somebody, I, I do not care how liberal they are. They can be an atheist. That's fine. The only thing it requires is that they be a scholar in the area we're talking about. Historical Jesus. So you've got to know what's going on, why it's going on. I do not care if they're liberal or how liberal they are. And my argument is, I'll go to state university campuses, I do this all the time. And I hold a New Testament up. <clears throat> and to make a point, several times I'm co-hosted lately. This is a new phenomenon. I am co-hosted by a Christian group on campus and by the Free Thinker Society or Atheists for Jesus or I don't know, you know, all kinds of crazy names. And they're both co-sponsoring me. So it's an atheist group putting on my resurrection lecture. And of course, they don't believe it, but they're co-sponsoring. And so I'll start the group like this. I'll say, because I'll ask beforehand. I'll say, I understand about half of you are Christians and about half of you are not. So let's talk about the Bibles you believe in, what you think the Bible is from your perspective. And I'll do four views. If you're a believer and you believe the Bible is inspired, every word, no mistakes, you folks answer for the ones in the crowd. If you think the Bible is totally God's word, no mistakes, did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes. All right. If the Bible's not inspired that well, but it's pretty well inspired, and there's some little boo-boos here and there, but nothing substantial, did Jesus rise from the dead? Yeah. All right. Now it's going to get a little tougher. The Bible's not inspired at all, but it's a fairly good history book, fairly accurate, not totally, but fairly accurate history book, not inspired. Is Jesus raised from the dead? What do you think? I mean, I think yes is a fair conclusion, but when I do this, a lot of the kids go, eh, it probably is about where are you? But then here's the last one. Not inspired, not reliable, not a good history book, a bunch of baloney. It's mythology. Was Jesus raised from the dead? No. Here's my argument today. If this Bible's true, Jesus is raised. If this is the view that's true, Jesus is raised. If this is the view that's true, Jesus is raised. And if the Bible's unreliable, Jesus is raised. Bottom line, Jesus is raised. Or, and I always smile when I say this, I try to be winsome. My argument is a heads I win, tails you lose argument. And if you think I'm wrong, that's fine. I can take it. But come on up and tell me afterwards why you think it's wrong. 
We have a Q&A, we'll say, for a long time. By the way, we'll be out of here by four. <laughs> we'll stay for a Q&A, and then I'll say, I'll stay here until the janitors kick us out. And I'm frequently in that room till 11, 11.30, and the janitors literally kick us out. But I'll talk to all of them. But my point is, even on your Bible, you skeptics, on your Bible, Jesus has been raised. And that's the argument I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you this argument. You know why? Because if Jesus is raised on this Bible, he's raised on all of them. So therefore, in other words, if he can meet the most stringent criteria, he can meet the easier criteria. All right, I call this the minimal facts argument. And in a sentence or two, what I'm going to do is take the skeptical data and I will show that Jesus raised from the dead according to their data. You know, how do you do that? Well, I've never counted. But let's just say, if you count every little tiny thing, let's say there's a hundred different details in the Gospels and a few odd things in the Epistles. But uh, let's say there's a hundred items about the uh, trial, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. A hundred things. And on a hundred, if that's correct, these guys are going to give me a hundred. These guys, almost totally you know, factual, they'll give me 95. These guys might say, eh, 70. Believe it or not, these guys are going to give me about scholars now, not the guys that just go off no matter what. This guy, these guys will give you about 20. And they think that's really skeptical, and it is. It's only 20%. But here's how I start my argument. I'll say, appreciate your 20 arguments, your 20 facts. I don't need your 20. It's way too many. I'm going to be way more skeptical than you most skeptical skeptics here today. Don't need your 20. I'll take a dozen. Whoops, come to think of it, a dozen's way too conservative for me. I'm going to do it with five. And they're thinking, I'm going to give you 20, and I think I'm pretty liberal, and you're going to cut it down to five just arbitrarily to show you how strong the case for the resurrection is. Now, I'm not going to stop and tell you how each fact is established. But I'm only, once I get to Paul, I'm going to say a few things about the Gospels, which would be on this side of the stage. But once I get here in the middle, and I start talking about Paul, I'm doing this argument. Okay? All right. As your pastor said, I'm doing a timeline. This is ground zero. That's creation. That's 2015. Ground zero. Why do I call Jesus' death ground zero? Because scholars usually dated either 30 or 33 A.D. Why not 30 or 31 A.D.? Because you've got to get the moon right for the Passover, and it doesn't exactly fall like that. So 30 is the most common date. I would say 30, but to get everybody on board, I'll just say ground zero. Jesus dies approximately 30 by crucifixion, ground zero. And when you ask the average Christian, how do you know Jesus was crucified? The two views down on my right side, they're going to say, 
Well, why don't you use Mark? Now, I'm going to use the critics' dates to show you how good the argument is even on their dates. Evangelicals usually date Mark about 60. Critics date Mark about 70. So it's not a world of difference. But evangelicals will say, start with Mark, and here's how we learn the most about Jesus. Critics dates. Mark at about 70 or plus 40. Matthew at about plus 80 or, uh, sorry, at 80 AD or plus 50. Luke at 85 or plus 55. And everybody puts John at about 95 AD or plus 65. And you can build a good case for the resurrection with these books. But most critics don't like the Gospels. Now, I was debating a guy recently, oh, a couple years ago now, but a skeptic, and even a guy who's got a reputation for being kind of nasty. And for whatever reason, he and I headed off that weekend, and he wanted to have a couple meals with me, and he called me his buddy, and we spent time together. And, but he was saying silly things. And when I got up to respond to him, I told everybody, I said, hey, this guy's become my friend this weekend. I'm not trying to be mean to him because we were both up on the stage together with our own pulpits. And I said, but almost everything he just said in his opening statement is false. And I can show you everyone is false. And I turned to him because he had just said the Gospels were way too late. And I said, they're way too late at plus 40? Yes. And they're way too late with John at plus 65? Yes. How about the guys who did the memoirs of World War II about 1990? There, there were some. Are they liars? Because nobody can remember things for 50 years? No. But the Gospels aren't good sources. Okay, great. I said, what about Alexander the Great? Do we know a lot about Alexander? Yeah, we know a lot about Alexander. Conquered the whole known world, came from Macedonia, went east, went over India, took over the world, had a famous battle unit called the phalanx, which is the long spears and the, and the uh, shields, and nobody could stand against him, and he dies when he's 33 of a fever and mysterious kind of death. He conquered the world, and his kingdoms divided into four kingdoms. Yeah, we know a lot about Alexander, but... Jesus is lousy source at 40, right? Yep. John at 65, right? Yep. You like Alexander? Yep. You know the earliest good source for Alexander? I told him this. If that's Alexander's death down there, 330-ish B.C., 330 B.C., the earliest source for Alexander... Is plus 350. But 40's horrible. 350 is looking pretty good. Now, I should go on up there. I told the group yesterday, one time I walked over here and I went out the side door and I was locked out. <laughs> Knock on the door. 
The first major source for Alexander, there's little tiny snippets and things written here and there, but I'm talking about data. The first major piece is 350 years later. But the two largest biographies for Alexander, you know, best, four and a quarter and 450, Arian and Plutarch. Four and a quarter and 450. But we're way too late at 40. That sounds to me like a little bit of historical prejudice. How about you? You know? Now, this is how most Christians argue. They use the Gospels. I'm using a different argument. This begins the take only the skeptics facts. Critics will allow, the, the most strident critics, will let you use seven of the 13 books that bear Paul's name. And it just happens that these are the books we would mostly use. They're the major ones. They'll let you use Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, First Thessalonians, Philemon. Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, First Thessalonians, Philemon. I'm only going to use two texts. First Corinthians chapter 15, first 11 verses. And the end of Galatians 1, beginning of Galatians 2. You say, well, that's two texts. Not really. In the original, there's no chapter division. So, end of what we call Galatians 1, beginning of Galatians 2. Now, Paul starts First Corinthians 15 like this. 15.3. I gave you what I was also given. Very simple. But you folks hear how significant that is? I gave you what I was given. The New Testament is full of passages that critics call pre-Pauline creeds. There's dozens of them. And they answer this question. I think it's the most exciting question in the New Testament. The creeds answer this question. Of what did earliest preaching consist before there was a single New Testament book? That's exciting to an historian. What did early Christian? I'm asking a different way. What did earliest Christianity look like between 30 and 50 A.D.? Read the creeds in the New Testament. There's dozens of them. How do you know what the, where these things are? Well, in many cases, the author tells you. And here Paul's telling you what it is. Once again, hear Paul's words. I gave you what I was given. Now they call these pre-Pauline. Because if Paul came to the Lord at plus two or plus three years after ground zero, which is what critics think. In other words, Acts 9 is about two to three years after Acts 1. If that's when Paul met the Lord... And he got this material before that? That means automatically it goes back to within one to two years of the cross. I think 65 for John is fine. This is their dates again. Well, that's an evangelical date too. But I think 85 for Luke, I won't argue. Great. I think it's earlier, but great. 80 for Matthew, wonderful. 
Mark plus 40, 70, good. But we can get back to one to two years? Yep. How do you do it? That's what the rest of this lecture is about. How can I get the two E's to make early history? We rarely have this in ancient history. But how can I get early eyewitnesses? You say, well, all eyewitnesses are early. Not really. Some people tell their memoirs of certain wars, and they may be eyewitnesses, but they tell them 60 years later. That's okay, but I wouldn't really call that early. Early eyewitnesses. I was there, and I told you about it right away. How do we get from here, when Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15, to there? That's the question. It's already early enough. I could do just this. And, and critics respect this argument, the one I'm going to do right now. It's real simple. Everybody thinks Paul wrote 1 Corinthians about 55 AD. 55 AD is plus what? Plus what? 25. Everybody thinks 25 is fine. Okay, I'm done. See, if that's all you wanted to do, you could make that point and quit. 25 is fine. You could have written about Vietnam in 1990. That's fine. World War II is pretty old. Vietnam, fine. A lot of people did it. Paul writes 25 years later. But he said, this is what I gave you when I came. I gave you what I was given. Some people say this is the most readily identifiable date in the New Testament. When did Paul go to Corinth? 51 to 52 AD. How do we know? Because the New Testament tells us who's the mayor of the city. They didn't call him mayor. Basically, mayor of the city. And here's what's really neat about the, the Greek city mayors. They only had one-year terms. The, the New Testament tells us who was the mayor when Paul went to Corinth. And we found an inscription in rock that says that he was the mayor from 51 to 52 AD. One year. So we narrow it down just a few years. Paul writes it about 55 or plus 25. He gave it to them orally about 51 or, I mean, about, but I mean, that's really, really close. Late 51, early 52, at 21 years from the cross. Now, Paul says, I gave you what I was given. When and from whom did he get this material? The consensus critical position. You mean guys from way down there, that fourth Bible? Yep. Consensus critical position is that Paul received this material in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following about five years after the cross, plus five. Now, critics are going to grant this, so there must be a pretty good reason for it. But you might be curious. How would you get five years? Do the math. Now, when critics say they trust seven of Paul's 13 books, they don't mean he's inspired. They don't believe in inspiration. Well, what do they believe about those seven? 
They think Paul's an authority, studied under Gamaliel. He's a scholar. He was right place, right time, knew the apostles, persecuted the church, brilliant man, and was honest. He wouldn't lie. He could be wrong, but he wouldn't lie to us. That's what they mean by a good source. And they think Paul fits that bill. So, if Paul comes to Jesus at plus two, or maybe plus three, he says in Galatians chapter one, the other text, for three years I went out in the desert and communed with the Lord. I was taught by the Lord. I learned, I studied. Three years. Then I went up to Jerusalem after three years. When did he come to the Lord? Let's say plus two. How long later after that did he go to Jerusalem? Three. Two plus three? Five. Oh, well, I think Paul came to the Lord about plus three. Great. Three. Plus three. Six years later, he's in Jerusalem. This is really something. And what's he doing there? And who is he with? He's with, he said, I was there for 15 days, and I saw none of the apostles except Peter and James, the brother of the Lord. Bart Ehrman, the best-known skeptic in America, by the way, Moody Bible grad, Wheaton grad, and lost his faith at Princeton Seminary. That's what I understand anyway at Princeton. But he calls himself a non-Christian agnostic leaning toward atheism. But he's a scholar. He knows this material. This is his field. Bart Ehrman says, Paul got this material about plus five. And he was 15 days with Peter and James in Jerusalem. And then Bart Ehrman says this. I'd like to have spent 15 days with Peter and James in Jerusalem. It's a cool comment. So would I. What would your first question have been if you spent 15 days with Peter and James? Here's mine. I'll tell you guys how Jesus looked to me on the road to Damascus if you give me your testimonies, how Jesus looked to you. Peter, no offense, but you had run away and you denied your Lord. What do you look like? How'd you feel? James, no offense, you didn't believe. You weren't a believer. How did it feel when you're sitting there one day and all of a sudden Jesus is your brother's in your room and he says, bro, it's me. What did you think? That's my first question. Plus five to plus six. All right, Galatians one ends, Galatians two starts. Paul says, 14 years later, don't you appreciate him giving these dates? 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem. Critics put this at about 48 AD or plus 18. Still very early. He goes back to Jerusalem. And this time, Peter's still there. James, the brother of Jesus, is still there. And John is there. 
throw Paul in, and nobody in Christendom, then or since, is more influential than these four. Not Martin Luther, not John Calvin. Nobody's more influential than James, the brother of Jesus, Paul, Peter, and John. And they're all there together in Galatians chapter 2. And Galatians 2.2 2 is one of the weirdest verses in the New Testament. Just read it. Paul says, I went back up there at plus 18. I went back up there to set before them the gospel I was preaching. What's the gospel? Whenever the gospel is defined in the New Testament, it is always a minimum. Other things pop up once in a while, but it's always a minimum. Deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. Resurrection is unquestionably an indispensable part of the gospel. Galatians 2.2. 2. I set before them the gospel I was preaching to see if I was running or had run in vain. What? Yeah. I went up there and put the gospel on the table, the gospel I was preaching, to make sure we're all on the same page. Cool. Paul was doing apologetics. He wanted to make sure all the early eyewitnesses were on the same page. And just right after that, five words in English. They added nothing to me. They added nothing to me. You know what Paul's saying? We had the same gospel. They said, yep, got to be deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. And just a few verses later, Galatians 2.9, this is where we get the phrase right hand of fellowship. They laid hands on Peter and Bar- I mean, Paul and Barnabas and said, you go to the Gentiles, Peter's going to take the gospel to the Jews. Right hand of fellowship. So now it's, they added nothing to me. And we're sending you out with our blessing. Wow. So they're all on the same page. Yep. All preaching the same gospel. Yep. Deity of Jesus. Yep. Resurrection. Yep. Plus 14 at the latest. And starting, John wasn't there. But the other three, back at about plus 5 or plus 6. Now, this is, this is great news. This is a great argument. But let's get from here back to there. This is a don't miss the forest for the trees argument. This is when Paul heard it. Remember? I gave you what I was given. Paul heard it. I gave you what I was given. This is when he was given this. But now watch, if James and Peter had it before Paul had it, it's here. Now, these early creeds in the New Testament, how do you know they're creeds? There's a lot of indications, but textually, they don't fit the syntax. They're off a little. You ever remember writing papers in school, and you can't get the voice or the person exactly right when you're blocking a quote? So you just give up on it, 
and you leave it, and you got a singular and a plural, and you can't switch it around, you can't change the quote, and you can't change your whole two pages. So just leave it, and the professor writes, awkward. Awkward transition. Well, creeds have awkward transitions in the New Testament. It's just an odd break. And <clears throat> Paul hears it right here. If they gave him their testimony, they knew it before he had it. But it's going to take a while to change the preaching of the resurrection into a creed. Because the creed of 1 Corinthians 15 reads like this in the Greek. It's two stanzas. It doesn't rhyme like English. But it's two stanzas. But it takes a while to put things in a standardized form like that. So... Paul gets it. They had it before they gave it to Paul. And it takes a while to put the testimony into the standard form, but we're, really, we're already on top of the event. So the material on which the creed is based goes back to the cross. Here's what happened. They got it creedalized. da 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 Now, James and Peter have a testimony, and Paul hears it. You say, well, do critics grant this? Yes, they do. How do they get out of this? That's our problem. It's really tough to get out of this. But these are what the data say. We get the material from all the way back here. Really? Like who? Well, if you're into this kind of stuff, James D.G. Dunn. He's as well-established uh, historical Jesus scholar as there is in the world. Dunn says, the latest that the da 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 form could have come about is months after the cross. Here's the cross, months. That's the latest. And Larry Hurtado, just retired from University of Edinburgh, he's Canadian, he says, it came out in that form days after the cross. Days. Why not? It was a central Christian message and they wanted to get with it. They wanted to tell people about it. And we got to put it in a form where illiterate people, see, most sociologists of religion believe that up to 90% of Jesus' hearers were literate. That's not an objection. It's not a problem. Illiterate folks can tell you every verse, if they're so inclined, if they know it, of uh, just as I am without one plea, right? A da 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 him. Or um, how about this one? When we've been there 10,000 years... No less days to sing God's praise than... Now, if you're all illiterate, could you have done what you just did? Certainly. In fact, we put it with music so you'll remember it. And those of you from the old days, when I want to hold your hand by the Beatles starts, you're going to know exactly where you are and you'll start singing the song. That's how music is so catchy and that's how you memorize things. Well, if you put it in a... Little boy blue, come blow your horn, cheap in the meadow. You know, 
23rd Psalm, that's how we learn. And that's why they did it. Because it's largely the group was illiterate and they wanted them to learn this. You've got to get it out there really fast. According to Larry Hurtado, Richard Baucom, and James D.G. Dunn, the three guys who are the big main specialists in this area, everybody will tell you they are. They're the big names. Their thesis is that coming out of the gate in 30 AD, whatever it is, 33, but coming out of the gate, I think they all say 30, these guys, but coming out of the gate in 30 AD, these three facts were there. Jesus died. Okay, no biggie. Everybody dies, but that's there. He was raised from the dead, and he's deity. How do you get that? These are monotheistic, law-abiding Jews. How do you get Jesus' deity? We can tell because they sang about him. And they sang about, they worshiped Jesus, and they used the Old Testament names for Jehovah and applied them to Jesus. Say like what? Here's one. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised from the dead, you'll be saved. How do you get deity? If you believe that Jesus is Lord. But Lord can mean sir. Lord can mean boss. How do you know that means Jehovah? Because three verses later, Paul's talking. Romans 10, 9 and 10 is not Paul. It's pre-Pauline. So again, Romans 10 goes in this little slot right here. But three verses later, Paul's talking. He's quoting Joel. And he says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Old Testament. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know who Lord is in that verse in Joel? Jehovah. Whoa. So, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And by Lord, three verses later, I mean Jehovah? You're calling this Palestinian prophet Jehovah? I should say Galilean. Galilean prophet Jehovah? That's high Christology. Coming out of the gate in 30 AD, three things. High Christology, death, resurrection. We call it the gospel. Without it, there's no message, but we can track it back to here. What do critics do with this, besides admit it? Part Ehrman says, <coughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't like the gospel argument because he didn't think any of the gospel writers were the authors. He says, but that is as close to eyewitnesses as we get in the New Testament. So it's early. He thinks it goes right back to the cross. It's early, and it's eyewitness, or virtually eyewitness. Best text in the New Testament. You know what else Barterman says? He says to you skeptics, he says, be careful when you pick a naturalistic theory. Ah, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. They saw hallucinations. Do you know that all the major naturalistic theories are found in the Gospels? 
Somebody thinks up every one of them in the New Testament. And three of the five are thought up by believers. Don't tell me believers don't doubt. Not even the New Testament. I should say even in the New Testament. So if you say, well, they thought they were seeing things. Like Luke 24, 36. They were terrified and affrighted. Suppose they had seen the spirit. And what was Jesus' answer? Well, if I'm a spirit, why don't you all come touch me? That's Jesus' response. Today we'd say... If he was a spirit, how come several people could see him at once? That's the modern psychological response. But here's what Bart Ehrman says. If you're a skeptic, you can't be too careful. Don't try to make up naturalistic theories. Because to evangelicals who are good with the data, your making up a naturalistic theory will be like throwing red meat to a lion. He says, right, I mean, those are my words, but what he says is, evangelicals are good at this stuff. He says, and you put some silly theory in there, and they're going to blow you away. So be careful what you say. Now, his old view used to be the disciples saw hallucinations. He doesn't say that anymore. Now he goes, I'm not going to pick a theory. Because no matter where he get, picks it, he's in hot water. So what are you left with? A very early report from the four most influential people who all gave their lives. You go, well, I don't like the gave your lives argument. We have a lot of people give their lives today. Yeah, they do. I'd even say communists give their, gave their lives. Buddhist priests set themselves on fire to protest the war in Vietnam. But people only die for what they believe to be true. But the disciples are the only ones who are in a position to know whether they saw the risen Jesus or not. A Christian missionary dies today. They died for Peter's belief to have seen the risen Lord. That's what they're dying for. But only Peter dies for Peter's belief firsthand. Only John died for John's belief. Only Paul died for Paul's belief and James for James. They're the only ones who know if he was raised, and they willingly went to the grave. See, giving your life doesn't mean it's true. Giving your life means you believe it's true. But the key is, they knew whether it was true or not, and they willingly gave their life. Folks, I could go on and on. I just gave a paper at a conference a few months ago, 21 Arguments for the Empty Tomb. 21. They're all critical arguments. Critics accept them. So now I have a 30. Early eyewitness in an empty tomb. By the way, empty tomb makes mincemeat of hallucinations. I'm just saying the case we have for Christianity is fantastic. So, let me end with this. What, what difference does it make? At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, 58 beautiful verses, earlier than the Gospels, by the way, all, all 58 verses, Paul says three things that are true because of the resurrection. Three things are true because of the resurrection. I only want to talk about one, and I'll end with that. Paul says because of the resurrection, he says, death, where's your sting? Grave? Where's your victory? Okay, this might sound like nice poetry or something, 
but it's not poetry. How do I know? Because I'm a hockey coach. I don't like poetry. You like it? That's great. No, I'm just teasing. I don't like it, but that's not the reason. It's not poetry because that's not what Paul's doing. Read the commentaries. Paul is trash-talking death. Paul is trash-talking the devil. Read Tom Wright. Read the commentaries. Read Mike Lacona. Paul's trash-talking. Here's why the resurrection is practical. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, death, you got something for me? You've got nothing. Satan, you've got nothing. You know why? My Lord is raised from the dead. Trump you. What? Yeah, I know. I know you could hurt me. I've been hurt many times, but you're going down. You're going down because my Lord's been raised from the dead. Think about it. You've lost. You lost. You've got nothing. Jesus is raised, and we have eternal life. I leave you today with the words of our Lord from John chapter 14, verse 19. Because I live, you shall live also. That was awesome. Thank you so much, doctor. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. We really appreciate it.